Hello. Welcome to the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of the Resilient Shift. Today, Peter Willis and I discuss insights on leadership during a crisis from our penultimate, such a good word, 13th round of weekly interviews with the same group of 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations involved in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, Peter. It's good to be back with you again. Hi, Seth. Yeah, nice to be with you. So I understand that this is our penultimate episode or podcast, Peter. I mean, I, I love that word. I, I think maybe, you know, we could have structured, done this whole thing just so we could come to the second to last episode and I could use that word. <laughs> it's such a great word, but uh, also kind of signals uh, a little bit of sadness. It's kind of coming to an end. I can't believe how fast this 16 weeks has gone. It, it is extraordinary. And I have definitely this week, um, as we'll discuss next week when we, when we meet, I've been having my final conversations with the participants, and I feel very, very sad to be leaving them. Um, but the uh, the momentum was still firmly with us last week, which is what we're going to talk about now. And of course, if this is the penultimate podcast, next week's is going to be the ultimate, Seth. Think of that. <laughs> right. That's right. No no pressure. That's right. <laughs> no. It's interesting, you know, when we, when we um, jumped up this project, we I, you know, I hate to say it, but it was a bit arbitrary that we picked 16 weeks. We, you know, we kind of felt like eight weeks wasn't long enough. 20 was way too long. So we kind of guesstimated that 16 might be enough time to see this evolution of what was happening around COVID and build the relationships. And in hindsight, I have to say it kind of feels like it was the right amount of time. I actually remember when you first communicated that you thought 16 weeks would be it. And I thought, huh, how did he come up with 16? And <laughs> why didn't he ask me? But at the same moment, I thought, spot on. Actually, that just felt intuitively right. And I think we all thought the, the pandemic would be pretty much sort of on its way out by then. So we would go through a whole arc of crisis. And of course, um, <laughs> we are very, very far from that situation now. But I, I still think that the discipline of this 16-week period was well chosen. And I think, it's, I think the fruits are bearing that out. It's interesting what you said, too, because we very much did think that that amount of time would allow us to cover this arc and it would be kind of on its way out. And in one way, that's very much true. In another, it's completely untrue because we're still, you know, knee deep or neck deep maybe in this pandemic, but maybe also true in that it did kind of cycle through a set of issues. And now we're right back to where we, we began with additional waves, even worse than the first and the economic fallout. So it kind of feels like in one way, you know, and for the analogies we've used in the past, Peter, you know, it's, it's a breaking wave and another one is coming in. It does represent an interesting cycle. And on that topic, I think part, some of what we wanted to touch on today is further reflections on the ongoing state of this and, and that it's not letting up. But I'm guessing it that from our previous conversation, that that might be one of the topics. But um, give us a little insight on, on top of your mind on kind of the highlights from the last week's of conversations. OK, so there's, there's definitely some discussion of this kind of um, depressing realization that things are not wrapping up at all cleanly and it's very hard to call the light at the end of the tunnel so and some of the implications of that 
it's kind of like almost schizophrenia, right? Is it's like, are, are we ramping this thing down or are, you know, and getting back to opening or are we actually closing, locking down again? Or is this some kind of weird hybrid? Yes. And I think we've moved from the sort of everybody knows the, the drill, um, having watched China lock down effectively. Right. So we, we know what to do. There are a few differences, but not much. So it's like all according to the manual. And then now the manuals don't exist for this phase. And that really throws a harsh spotlight on leadership, Mm -hmm. which often comes back refracted poorly because the kind of people who we've elected or found their way into top leadership positions are are often poorly equipped for this kind of decision-making and so on. So I want to talk a little bit about this issue of leadership and and where leadership is best found in a crisis not and what i mean by that is sort of where, where is power you know it's best located in a crisis which i think is a fascinating conversation and has popped up a couple of times yeah it really is and then um uh, one or two leadership insights uh, they keep coming through uh, in different ways which is so exciting and then uh, where i want to go at the end is to look ahead because I, I had some very interesting conversations about the potential for real sort of transformative change. So we'll, we'll end on that note. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that, that would be fun. I mean, we touched on that on an earlier conversation and lots of untapped potential to dive into that deeper. So that sounds great. All right. Well, it sounds like we got an interesting lineup. Um, maybe should we go right back to this first issue of what are we? Are we closing? Are we opening? Is it something else? And or the, your comment about the playbook that we thought we had or was developing kind of getting ripped up and thrown out the window? So out of the number of uh, little insights into this, the one that actually I realize as I'm talking to you really has stood out for me because it sort of got me thinking in a different direction is one from uh, Steve at the World Bank, where he was pointing out that, you know, while there have been real advantages in the global nature of this pandemic in that nobody can hide and pretend it doesn't affect them and and that it isn't really happening on their radar. Everybody's involved. So his world is governments and national treasuries and those kinds of organizations. But he's noticing that because of the economic tsunami that's washed through every country in the world has been so powerful and is lingering so long, the countries that would normally be available to step in and provide the funds for the bank to go and lend to help poorer countries recover are saying, look, sort of excuse us, but we're rather, we're rather in trouble ourselves. And we, we just don't have the spare cash that you think we do and we normally do. And so, and he foresees this being more and more the case going forward which is really quite a thing. I mean, in a way, it seems trite and obvious to say it, that when there's not much money around, even the rich don't have much money to to give. But you have to realize that that is the entire way the sort of post-Bretton Woods world order has operated for the last 70 years, is that there are always rich countries around who have always got some surplus that they can pump into the global system. Yeah, I was just going to say the same post-World War II again, you know, and the reconstruction of Europe. Same kind of thing, you know, you're, you know, again, one of the, the predominantly wealthier regions, you know, being kind of decimated then, and we were still able to, to a large degree through rebuilding and reinvestment, kind of get Europe back up and going in, in its economy and the development and creation of a couple of 
multilateral development banks associated with doing just that. But those banks got set up around that issue and have perpetuated how that money, it's really some sovereign wealth funds from countries that still largely dictate the large portfolios of the World Bank and some of the other multilateral banks. It's a very obvious, but a very good point to make that with something that's happening like this, we're all in trouble, but particularly the countries that already have less resources because there's going to be less to go around now. My conversations with Steve always leave me with a sense of just how incredibly difficult it is to run a global economy. And of course, nobody is, but yet we somehow all proceed as though someone is running it, <laughs> you know, because we sort of bought into the idea that there is a, there is a global logic, which if only we sort of tweak and, and adjust our sails a little bit, then we can, we can sail cheerfully on together. Again, I, I find some hope in some of the stuff that's happening because this it does present a massive problem, this point Steve is making. But I'm also hopeful because I, I think there's ever more awareness now as, as you know, globalization and, and our financial communities have become more intertwined. That makes us all more vulnerable because if something happens to one part, like in 2008 with the housing crisis in the US, which then impacted Europe and then the Eurozone and defaults on, on loans and increasing in terms of debt equity. All that happened in, in 2008, and now it's happening again, right, about 12 years later. And we had some lessons learned from the 2008 financial crisis, but not all of it has been put in place and or significantly shifted yet. Now, with this happening, I mean, there is nobody that isn't talking about how do we build more resilience into the financial community. And it's not that nobody wants this integration of the financial systems, because it is, you know, at the same time, providing more access to funding and to marginalize communities and individuals than ever before. So that is good. It's still a big gap, but it's still in going in the right direction. So you don't want to pull back from that, but you also have to build in far more awareness about how investments are getting screened, the types of projects that they're going into, not traditional projects, but new types of projects with shocks and stresses built in and hazards understood and climate change understood. So there's just this massive explosion of, of these types of conversations, which I'm now you know, I do think, Peter, that this will take root and it won't just be special interests and, and weird kind of geeky convenings and, and meetings. This is going to get mainstream now. Now, that's not going to help the short term while we're in it. But I do think that this is going to be a positive outcome in the midterm. Well, I know that you are in the thick of many such conversations, and it's very encouraging to hear that, Seth. Uh, logically, I'm with you. I simply don't have the data in the way that you do. But it's, yeah, you know, that's very good to hear. So I, I want to pick up then on this question of where decision-making power and authority and resources find themselves deployable during a crisis. And we may have touched on this once or twice before in slightly different ways, but it became really clear talking with Craig and Barbara and Mahesh this last week. In their different ways, they were saying that it's become very clear to them that closer to the ground you get with your decision-making and your resources, the more likely you are to be able to adapt quick enough as a crisis explodes around you. And too often, too much power is retained higher up, more centrally. And that's how things have typically been done over the last many decades. And it's deeply embedded in most political cultures. That that's how you run a, a country is from the top down, and cities are almost invisible. We talked about this last time. 
So Craig touched on this as he has before, this sort of um, the frustration of having to move at the pace of national government, which doesn't see the adaptability that's possible at city level. And, and Barbara echoed that in a way because she was sort of looking at the US situation, which you would know intimately, of course, which is that the um, city mayors and state governors have been working out how on earth they're going to respond to this crisis. But the central government began by sort of claiming the decision-making power, but then a bit, just abandoned ship, essentially. And the way she put it was, she said, this is more about who am I going to blame for the health crisis and then the economic crisis that follows, rather than where should the power correctly sit? So many meaty points you're raising. It's fascinating how this is all kind of emerging again. It, in general, I think there's been a, a very interesting and kind of broad ranging conversation on policy, implementation, resources, governance associated with this issue of what is the most appropriate level of government in terms of getting things done and adapting. And there's been a, you know, even in the UK, there's been this big discussion around the devolution of power. So how do you change that balance of, of not just where the authority is, but also where the money is? And then, of course, the devolution is to try to get that from national government down to local government in the UK, it's not exactly the same everywhere you go. Uh, India, as an example, has really strong regional power, kind of weak local power and, and moderate you know, national power. The US is very federal and state and less so on, on the city. So it depends on what country you're in. But in general, there's this issue that as more people are living in cities, more than 50% of the people on the planet, and as the economic drivers of the global economy are in cities, it's increasingly kind of tilting the balance towards, well, we need more authority and more more money because we're driving all of this, but we don't, you know, it's like we're driving the bus, but we don't have any control over the necessarily the the gas pedal and or the gearbox. Like that's a problem. So how do you figure this out and, and how do you pop it up? You know, I try to stay away from the US because it's such it's been so politicized now, you know, so as as Cities become the hot spots of democracy in terms of democracy. Uh, that isn't even a correct way to say it. Is cities become the liberal enclaves of the U.S. and rural areas become kind of the conservative Republican enclaves of the U.S. There's been an you know, attack from the federal government about pulling the rug out from under cities because it's helping to kind of create this further political divide, whether that's on occupations in Seattle or Portland whether it's around how we're funding and, and providing assistance to people around COVID. So that's, that's a little more complicated and politically driven, but the broader point is still, I think, really aptly made and, and echoed, I think, around the world from people like perspective of Craig's, which is interesting because you want to get money and authority to the place where action is, which is in cities. And you do want to see that happen, but then it's kind of be careful what you wish for. And cities want that too. But then now that there is a lack of kind of leadership and decision-making, it's kind of like the national governments are telling regional governments, you got to decide. Regional governments will turn around and say, cities, you got to decide. And then cities are kind of left holding the bag, but still don't have the power or the authority. And I kind of wonder, you know, is it that or is it more of the blame game? You know, is everybody kind of, it's like a hot, game of hot potato. Remember that when you were a kid, Peter? It's like, you don't want to be the person holding the potato at the end of that game, which is a terrible way to look at it. But I, I am worried that this is, really getting politicized in that way. Instead of putting our time and energy into figuring out how to solve this problem, people are putting their time and their energy into say, how can I get out of this with, with the least amount of blame? I know. I think that's, um, that is definitely on show in various 
headquarters and in various conversations. But it goes back to the point you raised, which I love, which is where do you find leadership like this at a point in time of this? You know, is it in traditional places and and CEOs and presidents? Is it people who are on the ground dealing with this? Is it the first line people uh, in in hospitals? Like where where do you find leadership in a time of crisis? For many many years, I've been pondering on and off this question of what is how, how do you define leadership? And defining anything is always a problem. Leadership is actually a Oh, no, I'm not even going to get into <laughs> defining it here. But I have better than that. I have some evidence, evidence of leadership or its absence, which came up in the conversations. Fantastic. I'm going to share with you. So one wonderful story of leadership was coming from Adriana in Salvador, where she really has uh, an exceptional mayor who insists and has insisted ever since he became mayor several years ago. Not, he's not an old guy either. I think he's in his 40s. He's always insisted that if we say that we're going to do something and I go out there and I tell the people we're going to do that, we are going to do that. There is no question about us changing our minds later and and making excuses. And he's built that whole culture into the administration of Salvador so that um, both his team knows that um, if they've decided that they're going to send him out to say something, then they had better back him up. Mm-hmm, right. And people have learned that when he says something, either I don't know and I'll find out, or we're going to do this, they relax because he's going to do it. And, you know, this is so simple. It's like sort of leadership 101. But how often can you say that about politically elected leaders, that they build a brand for integrity and trustworthiness, both internally with their teams and externally with their electorate? It's you realize how rare it is and how where we've got to in democratic. It's funny. I, that's exactly the reflection I had. I mean, I thought what a fabulous example, but how um, antiquated, like how uh, nostalgic, like that does not that's not how it happens now. You know, it's it's flavor of the week. It's what's the current polling of the day. And and how do you always allow yourself a, an opportunity to pivot based on the, the latest data? Yeah, it is so different. That's a really interesting story to hear. And and how it made me feel listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's hope that we, we move into days when, when that's more common and less surprising. Um, then, then there was a, a really a much more subtle leadership lesson that I got from my conversation with Tom last week, where he was talking about a boss that he clearly much admired um, during the years when he was really developing his own professional skill and, and becoming the, the leader that he now is. And this guy was his boss and his mentor for many years. And he said that, uh, because we've been talking about sort of, you know, whose idea is an idea. And he said he so often had this thing that he would suggest something in a meeting and his boss would just sort of ignore it or move on. And then a couple of meetings later, the boss comes out with this idea. And Tom decided early on that he wasn't going to challenge his boss. But actually, you know, you didn't acknowledge that that was my idea. I was sitting there in the room with you and you could have. And um, I said to him, you know, do you not think that by allowing him to get away with that over and over, you might have been encouraging in him a habit that could have been quite damaging to other people who weren't you? He said, no, I, I learned to put up with it and I could take it. I didn't mind and so on. But he said, yeah, no, you're right. That actually, I realize now that I was actually enabling really poor leadership behavior by going along with that. 
So this idea of um, validating voices and ideas that are sort of, in quotes, below you in the hierarchy, because so many organizations traditionally expect respect to go upwards so that their leadership is fully respected and so on. I love that example. And it, it is, it's, it's just kind of a way of doing business, isn't it? That's can you kind of think that a, you know, credit flows up, not down. And that's what you need to do. Your job is to make boss look good. And if you do that, you know, you'll get taken care of. And that's, that's the way to do it. Also reminds me of a, something you brought up in one of the previous conversations. You're talking about Craig and, and South Africa and, and local government dealing with regional and national government, same idea, you know, local governments put up some ideas. They don't say anything two weeks later, you know, regional government saying, oh, look at this great idea, same exact thing. I'm sure it's very common and it's quite dispiriting when you're on the receiving end of it. I'm not saying it's an easy call to, to confront a senior player. No, but it's, I think it's, it's a great example to call out on how something that seems small and, you know, commonplace is actually, it's not actually helpful. Actually, do you know what? You've reminded me of uh, something that uh, Peter Chamley in uh, Melbourne was saying about micro acts of racism that have been discussed now within his team on the back of the Black Lives Matter protests. And he, he was just saying how what a fascinating conversation they'd had about where people were sharing their experience of micro racism, which was never something that you would sort of stand up and go face to face with someone and say, don't you ever say that to me again. But they're the things that erode self-esteem subtly and, and erode trust in a team and so on. And I think this is another, you know, this is just another example of this sort of casual behavior from a leader downwards that can reduce self-esteem and effectiveness. Totally agree. Yeah, I think it's a great example. I wanted to get onto the future-focused conversations that I had, where we were talking about how are we going to actually break through to really different futures, which is, I think is a, a thought that is on everybody's mind at the moment. And uh, Steve had an interesting thing to say about how in, in he has, over the years in the, in the World Bank, he's, he's noticed how easy it is, and I'm sure this is true of any large organization, there's an art to working out what will pass muster with your next level above you and the level above them and so on. So in other words, if you've got to write a recommendation or a report to go upwards in the organization, you don't want to write something in there that you're fairly sure is going to get rejected. The art of managing up. Well, it is. It's the art of managing. It's a, it's a, vers- it's a variant of that. It's a sort of a subsection of that where you're, you self-censor your bolder ideas because you, you have an idea that the person two levels above is too stodgy and conservative to let it through or something like that. And he was saying, um, shouldn't we in some cases try and fail and see exactly how far we can get and learn by doing? And I thought that was really nice. It was like sort of, you know, to hell with your assumptions about what the people above you might make of what you're going to suggest. There is a real urgency here. Let's give it a try and fail if we have to. What's the worst? We're not going to die. Um, so courage. Well, so you know, what's interesting is uh, there's a huge burgeoning community of practice around this on, on how you fail forward. What's interesting about what you said is it's actually, it's almost the inverse. If you don't do this, you could die. I mean, that's what's, that's what's literally beginning to happen, or at least parts of our planet and our ecosystems can. We don't have enough time to go through a more thoughtful and risk-averse process. We've got 20, 30 years now to decarbonize our economy. Another study just came out from a a group of pretty notable scientists narrowing down the 
acceptable temperature range with which we could see runaway consequences. And we've just got to accept and incentivize a more rapid application of various things in infrastructure, energy, you name it. Our tolerance for failure and risk is going to have to go way up. And we're also going to have to create mechanisms with which to learn and adapt uh, and to evolve what we're doing in real time in order to do this. And I just don't think enough people are really aware of the timeframes that we're under. So I, I think it's a, it's a great point and, and it's one that everybody should be thinking about. Yes, I totally agree. I think you put it really nicely. Um, but I'm then putting on Steve's sort of helmet and thinking like a bank. For banks to sort of go and take extra risk, the automatic response is, well, that'll make our money, if we fail, that makes our money much more expensive and everybody suffers, all the poorer nations who want to borrow from us. And so you're sort of so easily back at square one. But um, the beauty of having a real, real backs to the wall crisis like this one, and, and particularly like climate change, where the, the cliff edge is so steep, is that you have to take some risks, even if you're a bank. We haven't seen that happen very much, but I think it will, as you're saying. And I want to end with um, something on this sort of future look from Pani Pham, who I thought put it really interestingly, where we were talking about um, the impact on the uh, economy and employment of COVID-19. And he said, we're in a world that has just taken a quantum jump forward to mass unemployment. And we need a different mechanism, a different social exchange mechanism for providing minimum benefits to individuals in society. And I asked him if he meant something like a basic income grant or a universal basic income. He said, well, that's one of a bouquet of ideas that are kicking around in the circles that he moves in. And he says he can see limitations to the idea of a universal basic income, but we didn't really get into exploring that. I've thought for a long time that something along those lines has to be our way through to creating something closer to equity within our societies. I liked what he was saying about this is a, a logical implication of moving to mass unemployment. I mean, that's an awful term, isn't it? Mass unemployment. What a quote and what a, a powerful way to kind of sum that up. But again, it, it's right on point and, you know, it's, it's playing out all over the place, even, even in the U.S. now as we're continuing to extend unemployment and the benefits to a growing unemployment pool here and how we do that and why we do that. And again, old economic models of how, how you re-jumpstart economies and, is, and do we keep following old processes or do we think about new ones and how to do it? So I, really, really interesting uh, comment from Hani and interesting to see how that gets played forward. But can't believe we're already out of time, Peter. And as usual, you know, as as we're winding down these series of interviews and wrap ups, it seems like we're not anywhere close to running out of unbelievably interesting content, insights, and discussion points. So no we'll have way. to figure out how we keep all this going after we wrap up this project. Yeah, I hope so in some way. But in the meantime, we have our ultimate podcast to look forward to next week, and I will see you there, Seth. That's right. I'm looking forward to it, Peter. Thanks again, as usual, for these insights. And I loved you being able to put some specific examples of, of where we can find leadership in a time of crisis. Fantastic. Thanks again. You've just heard the second to last round of weekly insights from the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. If you've enjoyed our podcast episodes so far, rest assured. We'll be bringing you more episodes in this podcast stream as we close out the project. Meanwhile, 
check out our project page or podcast stream to listen to what we distilled in previous rounds or our summary of insights at the midpoint of the project. Links are in the episode notes. This is Seth Schultz signing off on behalf of the Resilience Shift. Thank you and see you next week.